Hello, this is Richard Bunce from Simmons & Simmons, where I'm a finance litigation partner. The topic of this mini-podcast is the disputes aspects of closeouts. You may have seen recent press coverage about some high-profile closeouts and threats of action by parties who have been closed out. This is a period in which a lot of decision-making is taking place and against a backdrop of regulators urging forbearance in certain cases. Broadly speaking, challenges to closeouts can be either one, procedural, such as have requisite notices procedures been followed, or two, substantive, has the right to close out arisen or not? And if the right to close out has arisen, is it an unqualified right or is it a fettered right? And has the correct valuation method been followed? We can start with a couple of actual examples that we've seen in practice. One is where the parties had got their contractual address for service completely wrong in the written agreements and had accidentally nominated an unrelated third party's address. And although the early termination notice was delivered according to the contract, it wasn't delivered to the counterparty, who therefore knew nothing about it. The bank ended up having to reserve with a lengthy grace period with attendant price movements. Another one is where the traders accidentally got the valuation method completely wrong and didn't follow the one in the contract but followed another one altogether. That's the sort of thing that can happen when people are making decisions quickly. And just expanding on some of that with a view to minimising the litigation risk, the first important area is complying with contractual formalities. If someone serves an invalid notice, at best, that notice is ineffective and therefore has no consequence. But at worst, it's an unlawful termination that can render the serving party liable in damages, financial compensation, to the party who has been wrongfully closed out. Contractual formalities remain important, even in extreme market conditions. Uh, Add in remote working and business interruption on a large scale, and there's a significant risk of informality creeping in where formality is actually required. And here are the key messages that teams have to follow the contract if possible, not take shortcuts for convenience or speed. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the duties impacting on the exercise of contractual rights, express and implied terms. Let's start with express terms and what does the contract actually say? Quite often, the contract will provide what the parties have agreed about behaviour, such as acting reasonably, following commercially reasonable methods, acting in good faith, and so on. If you look at the ISDA Master 2002 version, there are various Uh, provisions in there which do require parties to follow commercially reasonable procedures. If you see the set-off currency conversion clause at 6F, for example. So that's that's fine if they're expressed terms. What if there aren't? Well, and then you're looking at implied terms where the contract is silent. What, if anything, will the law imply? Now, we'll start with good faith. And it's often said that there is no general duty of good faith in English law. And in that sense, we're a bit of an outlier with most of the civilised world. But there are many exceptions to the general rule where the court will imply a duty of good faith as a matter of law, as a function of the relationship between the parties. You think trustee, beneficiary, employer, employee, and so on. And one of the circumstances in which there is an implied duty of good faith is in the context of contractual discretions. Note that there is some uncertainty around what amounts to a contractual discretion. 
The authorities suggest that a contractual discretion involves an assessment or choosing from a range of options, taking into account the interest of both parties and does not include circumstances where a party is deciding whether or not to exercise a remedial right, such as termination or rescission. Another way of looking at that is to say that a contractual discretion arises where one party to a contract is afforded a right to determine a substantive matter which may have an effect on the interest of both parties and so involve elements of potential conflicts of interest. Therefore, the mere fact that a contracting party has a choice to exercise does not of itself attract the operation of an implied term and a term should not be implied where a contracting party has a decision to make in relation to the exercise of an absolute contractual right. Similarly, the discretion conferred may be found on its true construction to be unqualified and in that case the court ought not to imply a term restraining the exercise of the right given the rule that an implied term cannot contradict or be inconsistent with an expressed term of the contract. But under the general law for a long time, where a party does have a contractual discretion, the courts will imply a term into the contract requiring the relevant party to exercise its discretion in a way which is not irrational, capricious or arbitrary in a public law sense. That is to say that it's not so unreasonable that no reasonable person acting reasonably could have reached it, such as, for example, where a calculation agent may make some determination. Now, that is essentially a challenge to outcomes. How far does that go? Well, it may no longer be just outcomes. Unless a court can imply a term that the outcome be objectively reasonable, so, for example, a reasonable price or a reasonable term, the court may also imply a term that the decision-making process itself be lawful and rational that the decision is made rationally as well as in good faith and consistently with its commercial purpose. This is a so-called braganza duty. Where that gets us to is because of the risk that an adversely affected party could seek to interfere with the exercise of a discretion, it's important that the party exercising the discretion can demonstrate that its decision-making process is rational and made in good faith for a proper commercial purpose. In practice, therefore, this will involve being able to demonstrate that its processes are rational and that the outcome is objectively rational. In practical terms, on the positive side, therefore, make sure that those decisions are being documented in real time as contemporaneous evidence of the thought process and sources information is more powerful than any future litigation. Take screenshots. It's very difficult to create contemporaneous, inverted commas, feeds five years after the event. And on the negative side, avoid creating unhelpful electronic paper trails. Obviously, anything recorded is likely to be disclosable in English litigation anyway, unless it's legally privileged. So to wrap up, if hindsight proves unkind, two or three years down the line, what matters is an audit trail of a reasoned decision made by the right people and with the contractual formalities complied with. In the cases that prove stickier, are the ones where hindsight gets a helping hand from lack of records, an apparent conflict of interest, or departure from process. From a litigation risk management perspective, our two top practical tips would be one, follow process, two, keep the data on the basis of which decisions are being made. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.